Hello and welcome to the Calamity Vault podcast, where we play every indie RPG one week at a time. This is our final episode for Polaris, Chivalric Tragedy in the Utmost North. Polaris is by P.H. Lee, writing as Ben Lehrman. It's available online through Indie Press Revolution and through various other websites. And you should check it out, because as you're about to hear, it's extremely well-written and influential in the RPG scene. Anyway, here's the review. We are here to talk about Polaris. Yes, we are. That was definitely one of the most interesting systems I've played in recent memory. I think probably starting off, uh, I should mention that this Polaris was actually one of the first role-playing games I'd ever read. Uh, I got into role-playing games probably about 10 years ago um, through an actual play um, and pretty much dove straight into the indie scene. And in the first few games that I read, Polaris was this huge standout because of the very ritualized aspects of it and the fact that the entire rulebook is written in this cadence that I feel like drops you right into the setting. Um, I also adore the setting. And so, you know, flash now, I finally got a group together, uh, or we finally got a group together, and I'm really delighted that we got to play. Um, I think playing, one of my favorite aspects was this ritualized aspect of it. It was very dice light. Most of the keyword phrases felt like you're telling a folktale. And there are these kind of stock phrases that folktales tend to use. You get the same stock sentences across tales that give the teller time to catch their breath and also kind of trigger the next thing that's going to happen. And I really, really enjoyed the mechanization of that, basically, because it functioned to tell the listener, hey, this is what's going to come next. But in this particular game, it's the listeners are also the writers, because everyone sitting around is negotiating what is going to happen in the game. I also really liked that it was written for four people specifically. Um, There are rules in the game to play with more or less, but the game is very clear that it runs best with four people. Yeah, I... I would be surprised if it would work very well with less than four. I could see it working with two, but three sounds like a nightmare. Correctly. I think if you have three, you sort of fold the moons together a bit. Correct. I definitely see that. But I think that you would then have an issue of asymmetry of the adversary role. I think that this game benefits greatly from that symmetry. And I almost wish that we had played it as the full four-player version with each person having their own protagonist. It can't be done in a one-shot. That's pretty clear. But I suspect that the game feels very different if everybody is progressing their own story while simultaneously acting as an adversary. That's probably right. And I, I also would love to play it in a longer form thing where you could Absolutely. explore that. Because, I mean, when we were playing it, we clearly would not have had time to do four protagonists. No. Like, we, this was the right decision for a one-shot, I think. I'm kind of a sucker for one-shots. Um, <laughs> on the other hand, and I, I actually really liked how it ran. And I, I, like, I, I do think it would be fun to expand, like, a broader story where everyone gets to play into every roles. But I think, like... If you only have time for a one shot, maybe here or there, then I don't I don't think there was too much lost by doing that, especially if you traded it off like here and there and let other people take different roles down the road. But I, I really enjoyed it, even with, you know, just having it like the one direction of the mistaken um, to the protagonist. Let's talk about some of the mechanics. And I, I suspect, you know, we all love the setting and maybe we can talk in a little bit more detail about that later on, but since we're in amidst the mechanics, I'd like to talk about the moons. How did you all feel that the moons worked here? Adored the moons. I adored the moons so much that I think I'm actually going to institute uh, a very similar mechanic in every game I play, because I love collaborative tables. 
I love when I'm GMing for someone to pop in with, hey, what if this happened? And when I'm a player, I very often bite my tongue because I don't want to get in the way of someone else's storytelling, even when it is presented as a collaborative table. Because this mechanizes collaboration in a way that very clearly states the moon can say something. And you can either say, but it was no matter and dismiss it. Or you can say, we shall see what shall become of it. You don't have to like shift what you said or reincorporate it or even like, or even repeat it. It's just this kind of tacit nod to that's a really cool idea. Pretend I was the one who said it. And it just makes it feel like you have permission to be collaborative in a way that a lot of even collaborative games still feel like you're interrupting. Mm. So I I think I have, like, I, I don't want to say mixed feelings because on the whole I really liked them. Uh, I, I liked that aspect. I don't know if I would go so far as to, like, specifically incorporate them into... As we all know, I currently run Wild Sea, and Wild Sea does do a pretty collaborative table. And I'm trying to make it more collaborative, but I, I don't know if I would go as far as to, like, assign NPC roles to players. Yeah. That feels like it, would, like, that feels like it works really well in Polaris. Uh, although I would have liked to, I think over, over a longer game, we would have seen both, like, the full moon and the new moon roles, and those NPCs both have more going on with, with our protagonists. Uh, because I, I think Cygnus did not really interact with anyone on his full moon side. I think Octans only only did so briefly. Yes, if I recall correctly, Cygnus's full moon was Vega. Vega and Octans as well, but they were never actually in a scene together. Yeah, uh, I yes. was mooning for Juliana, and uh, I did not play any NPCs in that game. <laughs> I thought that there was a brief connection with Vega, but I, I could be mistaken. It may have been solely in narration. I know I did not have to try to do your Vega voice that you were doing. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm probably just misrem- misremembering. I think that Avery and I are of a similar mind there. I loved the mechanic of being able to suggest something and then being able to, you know, no, no holds barred either take it up immediately or shoot it down or modify it. I really liked that, but I agree that the use of the NPCs was difficult. And I think it's difficult because, number one, it makes it harder for the GM or the adversary to shape the scene because unless you state in a meta sense, this is where I'm imagining this scene going can you help me with that? It's easy for there to be miscommunications about what is the tone or the theme that is trying to be explored in that scene. As an example of that, I thought that it was very difficult at times to incorporate Cygnus's bound servant, who is ostensibly a really important person in Cygnus's story, just because we're not telepathic. (laughs) So Z and I uh, were trying to sort of build off of what the each other were doing, but not necessarily know where the other was going at any given time. Yeah, I, I mean, part of that also might have been, I think I, I actually struggled a fair bit to run Capella, because I, I wasn't sure where to go from the start. And I think that that might have been more a me problem than anything, to be honest. Um, and then from there, that made your job harder. Um, because if I had given you a stronger character up front, you might have been able to like see, okay, that's that's where you're going with it. I could have flagged it like the direction I was thinking first. I'm not going to put that on you at all because I I didn't have any ideas beyond. I don't think that that's. I don't think it's reasonable to take that burden onto yourself. Um, I think. How dare you waylay me like this? It's very difficult, and it sets up a challenge. And it may be that that is different in the full game where you have four protagonists because then in a longer format, the presence of the moon's characters may actually be a struggle 
between the antagonist and the moons over the course of that character's life where the antagonist has to target and assault the moon's characters in order to weaken the protagonist. That could be really interesting in a longer form game, but in this shorter form, I don't think it worked very well. Um, And if I were to run it in a shorter form again, I would strip out the role of the moons insofar as they relate to the NPCs. And I would just have them be responsible for the suggestion and the arbitration of the disputes between the antagonist and the protagonist. I think I actually, disagree. Oh, <laughs> sorry. Go. I want to flag that because I think that we stumbled on something um, that we did really differently than the book says. You said if you ran Polaris again, um, and I think you said that because, and I am, I am, I am psychoanalyzing you here. <laughs> I, I think that may have been your phrasing because you were playing the antagonist, which is the, which is, or the, the, the mistaken. The mistaken. Um, mm-hmm. You were playing the mistaken, which is the, which is kind of the jam role and you didn't have a protagonist. Um, so mm. it seems like in this, in our game, you and Z ran it w- because we split up power in a particular kind of way. And that power was split along the lines of a traditional GM role. I think that that's not necessarily true to the spirit of the game. I think that Polaris is supposed to be much more collaborative than in kind of I ran it setting. And and obviously this is, we would feel very differently about this if we all had player characters. Yes, I think that you're right in that psychoanalysis. And I hadn't thought of it that way, but I agree with that. Now that you're saying it, my thought process was very much, how do I create an interesting story here in the the 10 minutes I have now that we have all these characters together? Um, and I suspect that a longer form game where everyone had their own protagonist and antagonist would allow for almost a more oppositional character where you're really, in a competitive sense, trying to harm the protagonist and the rules of the game are there to limit the extent to which you can do so. And the moons are there to adjudicate. And I think that that could be really interesting. It's unfortunate that it's probably difficult to see in the short form play. So I don't think I could, I don't think I see a circumstance under which I would take NPC control away from the moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I like that a great deal, and I think in longer form play, probably how I think things could be helped would be both, if you're doing a longer form game, you have time to talk about, like, where you think things are going, and, like, what you kind of want to do. Also, notably, uh, Polaris does suggest that you take, that you, like, can talk between scenes about, like, hey, here's what I want sort of the next scene to look like. Or what have you. And so, like, that's potentially a chance to communicate stuff between, like, your your mistaken and your moons. Alternately, like, there's the possibility that if, if you really sort of embrace the... Because to me, a lot of this is not so much oppositional as it is collaborative. Yes. Uh, I know certainly whatever was going on in Octen's last two scenes, I was driving a great deal more of it than Z was. Yes. And I think that that's partially our play style. We are all people who, whether we are players or GMs, like to create people that are suffering and explore the suffering. Called out. (laughs) Um, And I don't think that's an accident that we're all experienced GMs, right? That that's a very storyteller-based technique. Clarice also gives a good deal of control to to your protagonist or to, to whoever is playing the heart in the current scene. Like, in that in most other systems, uh, including, you know, redacted system, uh, in, in most cases, you are not you, you are making the statements that, like, the book is sort of warning you away from, of, of like, yeah, I swing the sword, because whether you hit or not isn't up to you as the person like narrating the character, but is instead up to the dice. Mm. 
Yes. And it's also the, the idea of the declaratory statement, which states the outcome of the action, was difficult for us to get into for probably the first half of the game. And it's a very different mode of playing. And it was very interesting to explore that because I haven't been familiar with it at all. But it definitely created some interesting results once we really understood what it was asking of us. It feels really like co-GMing even when you're at the heart. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, we can't leave aside the fact that at the end of the day, it's the heart who decides when someone, if a character dies. Yes, but uh, the mistake... request it. Yeah, the, the heart can request that the, the that their character dies. The mistaken can request the like change or destruction of some or most of the world. It's very good. <laughs> yeah, I, I think because we're all experienced GMs, I think we're all very used to treating the interaction between a single GM and our character as co-writers of the same story. Because someone controls the world, someone controls our character. And we control our character. I think because we had these two oppositional pairs and we only played like primarily as those pairs instead of in a rotating cast of, of different pairs, basically, um, different heart and mistaken pairs, it felt more like a traditional here's a GM and here's and here's our PC, even with NPCs being delegated because we so often negotiate what's happening between the world and our and our characters. So I think it feels I think because of the way we set it up um which again very necessary for a one shot format I think I think we did the right I think we made the right call. I think it feels more traditional in that sense even with the moons kind of taking a less active role. To uh, to a degree maybe. I so I I had more active moons when I was the mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had a couple characters. We we got to interact a little bit with Vega at least at the beginning, um, the Chancellor, and then we got to interact with uh, Alva. And I really liked from where I was ceding control to the moons and seeing what what would come of it. Both in terms of like interjections of like, hey, here's an idea, which was extremely helpful and valuable to me, um, but also just letting the NPCs sort of become their own characters based on what other people sort of thought of them in their scenes or in our discussions of just making them in the first place. I, my experience of it was, I think very positive with the, having the NPCs sort of be taken over by the players who were the moons at the time. I I think it could go different ways depending on how it's being run and whether or not you're talking between scenes and whether or not it happens to like, work out with the vision. I, I do think that maybe that pushes me to think that maybe like communicating between scenes is maybe more valuable than we were giving it credit for since we were on a, like a project recording and all that. But I, I really like handing over control. And I think my experience, even of being the mistaken towards the heart, even in, as you, I think rightly said, we were in this oppositional like framework felt much more like I was it's true I took the responsibility for setting the scene some of the time, but I also let the heart set the scene sometimes. Um, Avery uh, did a fantastic job with Octans being like, here's what this scene looks like, and then I would jump into mm-hmm. it. Yeah, let is such a strong word here. Well, <laughs> They couldn't be stopped. Couldn't be stopped. Um, it's true. But, like, it, it's it's the sense in which it was negotiated, like... If I had an idea, I'd say, I think I have an idea for the scene. How do you feel? Mm-hmm. And you'd be like, okay, great, go ahead. And, and that's the sense of, like, you would let me do it. Yeah. Um, and same thing the other way. Like, if you had an idea, you'd be like, I've got an idea. Um, can I run with it? And yeah, of course. And yeah, I, it was I, just like, agreement. Yeah, like, crucially, by the time we got, like, about halfway through, I knew, like, okay, here's what... This is really, like, the end of this that I am driving towards. Here's the two scenes I think I need to get there. Let's go. I think that that is my one and only criticism with the rules, actually, um, is on page 77, and, I am, and I'm pointing this out because this is truly my one and only criticism with the rules, under the category, some advice for the heart and the mistaken. And it's just in the advice column, so yeah, yeah, we don't take the advice, whatever. But the bottom paragraph says, don't get, uh, when you're the heart and the mistaken, so the two active players in conflict, don't get advice from your opponent. 
If you ask your opponent what they would be happy with or what they want you to ask, the entire conflict system breaks down. So don't do it. Make them sweat a little. And I get what they're saying. I get that you don't want to hedge when you say what you want to happen, because if there's any negotiation between I want something really strong and you don't want something that strong, then you need to negotiate that with the conflict system. But honestly, the kind of people who are going to be playing Polaris, and from what I've been able to tell about the game's reception when it came out in 2005-ish, I think, um, I think the people who pick up and play Polaris are going to be more interested in story than in character, because you're picking up a tragedy. Like, your character's not going to win. It's very clear from that from the beginning. People are making scowly faces at the false dichotomy I have drawn. Yeah. That's okay. <laughs> we'll circle back with that in a second. Um, but basically, I think that system to, like, oh, no, never get advice from one of the co-GMs at the table just ends up bringing a little bit hollow and perhaps the most actively hostile line in the book, because I think especially as you get towards the end and everyone is on board with where the story is going, people are going to have good ideas. There are four people at the table, and if you're ignoring a quarter of the good ideas, then yeah. So that was that's my one criticism. Also, like, I, you know, at the very end, I certainly expressed that, like, yeah, okay, hey, I'm in a conflict situation where I can't make any but only if statements right now, but I would like Octans to die. And, like, I believe Z suggested that, like, okay, we end the conflict here then, and then we, we, we pretend that we have started a new separate conflict. This is fair and reasonable for us to stay within, like, the strictures of the rules, but I am asking advice from my quote-unquote opponent. Okay, and this is something I actually really wanted to talk about. And we, we avoided the discussion at the time, and we did that. And as Juliana said, we were testing the rules as they were written, and that was an option for us there. But now I, I have some significant issues. Before we go to the... Can we flag this and finish out some of the stuff? Sure, uh, please. Juliana said, but I, I do want to come to this too we'll um, and talk about it. There are a couple things I think I wanted to respond to in what you said. Um, one of them was like, I agree to an extent about your criticism of that advice and the rules, yeah. because I, I do think you should communicate. And in fact, in actual playing it, we did. <laughs> like yes. We, we oh. talked. And I think that like communicating about the story and the direction and what people want, and even just checking in like, hey, here's how this conflict went. Did the things that were going on there like... Did, did that make any sense as an exchange? And I think ours did, but like you could imagine like maybe someone is adding in like things that are way too bold, way too quickly, and you want to slow it down or make the exchanges last a little longer, have fewer of them end in like a veto kind of approach. Um, and those are all good things to check in on. I could see that advice just being about something like pre-negotiating your like well, here's this, well, furthermore, well, the, and, like, having mm. that pre-agreed upon. Because I think there's something fun and dynamic about, like, interjecting and kind of fighting over it. And I do want to come back to that, too, because I, I really, really love the, the conflict system for how that actually played out. Um, I think, as we mentioned a little bit earlier, it was a little bit slow start to get to that realization. But once I think we realized what you could do with the conflict system, it was so much fun. So good. Um, the other thing I have have to respond to Juliana about, and it's because uh, Avery and I were both scowling, um, is I I felt like, yes, the story is very important here, and I do like driving the story uh, forward in various ways, but I don't think I want to lose the character for it. And for this in particular, it to me it felt more like the story itself was driven by developing the character, mm -hmm. which was, at least in my role as the mistaken, um, I want to force Octans to develop and see where <laughs> Octans goes. Um, and we we made it to a place that I was very happy with, which is, ah, here's where Octans is now at, based on what has happened uh, and the antagonism that I've gotten to, to throw at him. What what are we going to do about that? Well, it's, it's time to die. <laughs> um, which is great, because I didn't even have to say it's time to die. Uh, the Mistaken doesn't need to do that. The character will do it. The player who's running the character will do it. Um, and that's just so fun. But I, I think it's like the development of those protagonists of the hearts is doing a lot more of the sort of 
the legwork that does, in fact, then move the story forward. Mm-hmm. And I think both are really important to keep in mind here. Yeah, I think we played Octans very much as like a character-driven tra- tragedy rather than a circumstances-driven tragedy. Yes. Yes. I completely agree with the both of you. What I meant is that it seems like a game where everyone is more invested in the story than in self-preservation of the character. This isn't like a redacted uh, <laughs> game system where at the end of a lot of at a lot of moments, and, and we were talking about this with Goblin Errands the other day, um, with Goblin Errands, uh, you know, I didn't feel, I didn't feel worried about leaning into the game because I knew that my little guy was going to be totally fine. In Polaris, I didn't feel bad about leaning into the story because the story was the whole point. If Cygnus died, if Cygnus turned into a demon, if we'd gotten to that point, that isn't really my concern. I probably would have pushed really hard, and I and I kind of did, um, to make sure that my sworn companion, whose name I have Capella. written, Capella, 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 that Capella was okay. I would have, you know, that is that was a lever on my character sheet that I was willing to jump on and say, you know, I'm willing to give up a lot to make sure that she doesn't get. I say fridged, I don't think Jack would ever fridge anyone, but it's also really fun in this game that you could pull out, hey, I'm going to fridge your character, and then <laughs> you can, and then there's the the conflict system for you to go, uh, no, the hell you're not. It's a really special system, and I understand why so many things have drawn from it. But to, I think, move on to the next part, I also understand why so many systems are based off of it and then why so few people have played it. This is this is simply suspicion. We actually have no idea. This is also likely because it came out in 2005. But yes. You are free to characterize your views in that way. I think <laughs> that there are certain deficits here. And I think that the rigidity of the conflict system is one of them. My most desirable attribute in a game is for the rules to get out of the way once play starts and enable us to just go back and forth and play out the story that we have. There were times that the conflict system did that and added to play. And there were times like when we talked about where we're trying to fit, where we all want this character to die dramatically. We all agree that it's, this is the appropriate moment, but instead of luxuriating in this beautiful and exciting moment of Octans, you know, refuting corruption, but at the same time dying and, and dying to a self-created monster, we're negotiating over whether or not we end the scene or we just say, Oh, you know, or, or can I request that my character die now? And that is my least favorite thing to do. And I think it's a travesty anytime that it happens. And so that was really frustrating to me. And on a more broad level, every time I had to look down at the sheet listing all of the terms to, to use, it was a frustrating experience because I wanted to be developing the conflict that was present there or introducing a story beat or presenting a problem. But what I was doing was looking through a list of things and trying to figure out what are the special words that I use to initiate the thing that I want to do. And I appreciate, Juliana, how much you love that ritual. And I love the ritual too when it works. But I think the problem is in a system where the ritual is how you do everything, there are times when it's not going to work. And for me, those times were so grating. And now I leave it to you for what I assume is a refutation. See, <laughs> I think that's really interesting because to me that happens anytime I need to learn a new system. And listener, I love learning systems. I love playing games and systems. I, my personal RPG opinion is that every game should... Every game you play should have a system that matches its tone. So, 
you know, if I'm playing 50 games, I'd love to be playing 50 systems. That said, learning new systems requires learning new mechanics, and I'm not very good at that. Um, I am not the rulebook person of the of the group. And I think that in a lot of very familiar systems, like Redacted, um, you know, if you've been playing for 10 years, if one has been playing for 10 years, this is not at Jack, sorry, 10 years was a was a number that I pulled out from thin air. Um, <laughs> that dug myself deeper in a hole. He's been playing um, for more than- Yeah, I've been playing for 17 years. <laughs> no one, Emily, please remove this. <laughs> Like if you've been playing, remove nothing. <laughs> I do like that we've we've moved to like self censorship so that we don't have the loud noise of Emily redacting. Uh... Oh no, she's gonna bleep over the redacted whenever you say that. <laughs> it's thing. very funny. <laughs> um. Anyway, uh, you've been playing for ten years, so you basically know what's on your character sheet. Like, I'm not asking. Hopefully, um, in our redacted game, <laughs> what I'm ro- what are my modifiers, <laughs> um, for hitting something with a sword, and that is something that I don't. Okay, I shouldn't need to think about <laughs> because we've been doing the same thing every Wednesday for three years. But when you're playing a new system, you know, in order to actually use the system, you're checking in with the system. You're looking at your page. I think for me the a little bit of friction with yeah this is a new system and I need to make sure that I'm following the rules of the system because playing a game in the same way that I wanted to check like you know what's my AC because I you know in 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 redacted you want to make sure you're not cheating in this kind of game you want to just make sure you're playing the game in the in the same kind of way I think this just feels more grating because what this game is doing and also games that I know are also grading to you, like Blades in the Dark, add some mechanics to what Polaris calls free play. And free play in other popular Tatterpigs is any time you're role-playing. And that's any time a character's talking to another character or you're doing something. The conflict is specifically when you're rolling dice to hit things with swords. Because the conflict here is interpersonal, it doesn't seem so grating to me because it because that's the whole system, I guess. I also don't know how this compares to Exalted's um favorably. I, I was about to bring up social context yes. so, social combat system. <laughs> I have watched the Exalted Social Combat System play out and I fucking love it. I've also, however, never ran it and never played in it because it's very complicated and I'm not smart enough for Exalted. <laughs> <laughs> Mood. <laughs> there, are, there are pieces of Exalted that are so beautiful. <laughs> uh, but there is a sense in which Polaris is a lot less mechanized than a lot of other games. Uh, and like Redacted Game in particular. I would generally agree. Although I would say that it's deceptive because it moves where its mechanization is as do a lot of these, you know, so-called mechanics light games. Often it's because they're just shifting the, the areas that they mechanize. Fair from a strictly mechanics based sense. Like I couldn't necessarily go, you know, I would like, I would like my redacted game character of three years to, to die now because they have a fuck ton of hit points and it's very difficult to kill them uh, <laughs> in, a, in a mechanical sense. I guess I didn't feel much friction with the system, even though I, I think I know what you're talking about. For me, it, it, like while, while there were moments where it's true, I had to look down to find like the right keywords and be like, okay, how does this move work? What are the responses that are, you know, appropriate for the ritual as it were? Um, and those did, like, in some sense, slow things down at times or constrain, like, uh, where I was thinking. I felt like they, for me, most often served as, like, a kind of inspiration. And also, like, the way that the ritualized language works serves as, like, an excuse to be more dramatic in many cases um, or more antagonistic. And I, I kind of liked that about it. So even where, like, some slowness shows up, I think there's a trade-off that you're getting for it. And the more you play the game, presumably the more that will go away as you get used to the phrases and the responses and um, things like that. 
I, I do understand what you're talking about in the particular moment you're sort of highlighting, right, where Octans is, um, like, in a scene where death is coming, and that's where both the mistaken and the heart are driving the character. Um, and there was a moment where, like, we did pause over the mechanics, and, uh, like, so my my first response is, and ordinarily, if we weren't recording this and trying to adhere to the rules, I would simply ignore them, um, mm-hmm. no matter what they were. Uh, but independently of that, like, I do think the rules provide you a pretty clear way to bring that about. And we were a little slow on figuring out how to make that happen the way that we were running the scenes. Um, but I I think that it's totally allowed in it, and that if we didn't want to think about it, we don't have to and could say, well, the rules in fact, do say you can do this. Maybe we don't want to work out the details how we can just run the scene now. Um, but I think that the way the rules are is part of what got us to that scene. Um, they they pushed us forward the way the conflict system worked and using the sort of more dramatic, ritualized language, I think, let us work towards that in a really positive way. And trying to adhere like, to the letter of the law is maybe always a challenge. Um, and we got more caught up in it than we had to because we were trying to adhere so aggressively. I I guess I feel like it did a lot of good for the storytelling. And while we did run into like one kerfuffle uh, in that moment and some much more minor ones elsewhere, it's something that could have been resolved in the rules pretty easily if we were like, if we had been a little more careful in planning, like if, if I was watching, because I, I knew as the mistaken, like this is a death scene almost certainly, or something is going to happen. Like, Avery is going to make decisions about Octans here. Um, And I I could have just left it so that um, the but only if was on the table, rather than, I I think I probably further moored you or something. Actually, I was going to say, I think I was the one who put the first, like, who who put, like, the first and furthermore, like, Mm. gun on the table there, which was, like, genuinely my mistake. Most of my attitude toward rules and toward learning new systems is that it's, like, functionally just another language. Genuinely, part of my earlier earlier frustration with Polaris was that we weren't using the conflict system in, like, our earlier scenes. And then once we sort of got going, certainly there were times when I was looking down at my sheet and going, okay, how do I work this? Like, how, how does this all come together? But, like, I don't know to what degree I would call that a failure of the rules, and to what degree I would call that, like, this is my first Polaris game, I am still learning how to play. Yeah, I suspect ultimately what we're talking about is a matter of taste. Um, Juliana, you mentioned before, and I think this is really salient here, that when you play a new game, you want to be playing a new system, and you want the system to match the tone really closely. And I broadly agree but there are certain things that I like to be as rules minimal as possible. And the free play, as Polaris describes it, is one of those things. Because ordinarily, I find that that is where I get a ton of enjoyment from just really smooth and rules-light interactions, where it's just you and another person or several people and you are in this moment, in this scene, and it's more of an improv than anything else. And I suspect that that's just something that really matters to me, so that when something introduces friction to that, even a little bit can make it uh, really grating for my tastes. And so I would just say to our listeners, you know, try to get a sense of, of what kind of player you are. Are you a person that wants to explore mechanizing different parts of gameplay? Um, Are you a person that has certain kinds of gameplay that you really want to be mechanized or really don't want to be mechanized? And think about that when you're selecting a game or when you're trying a new game um, or when you're trying to decide how to interpret a rule or or whether to take certain advice from the game. Uh, and, but at the, yeah, at the end of the day, I think this, it, that is really just a matter of taste. That that could be whatever you're doing in terms of like adding rules to games. You're you're imposing some kind of like you're trying to get a benefit, and it's very likely coming with some kind of a cost. Uh, mechanizing, as you put it, different things is going to have that. Right now, there's a rule you have to follow or try to follow or something or or ignore whatever. 
in this case, I think for Polaris, for me, the benefit of the ritual is aside from, I think the ritual stuff can be fun if you like that kind of thing anyways. But then independently of that, I think for me, it sets up um, moments of like a certain kind of inspiration, a certain permission to use a kind of uh, sort of more dramatic language and a permission to be um, to like make stronger grabs at the story. Um, and I like that a lot. If you don't like the that sort of thing and you just want to sort of free flow uh, and like free play in the freest possible sense, maybe, um, <laughs> maybe, maybe there's something to that, but then you lose some of that, like lead up, you lose some of that inspiration ritual that are otherwise uh, also valuable, but then you're balancing sort of which things you care about more and in which ways you want them. That's a thing I did think was, that was interesting within the conflict system was how relatively infrequently we actually made use of like rolling to resolve conflict. Yeah. Yes, and I'm not sure if that is because of our decisions <laughs> or not. Because we were very adverse to doing it. It's the sort of thing that is going to linger in the back of my head and maybe find its way into other implementations. And I suspect that that is probably Polaris's real legacy, is this conflict system. I mean, there's a reason it gets cited in so many other games as being an influence. I don't know how much we're really allowed to talk about the setting because please go get the book, but holy fucking shit, the setting is one of the most beautiful things I've ever read. Um, I think yeah. maybe have been noted, um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a trained folklorist and so a lot of the formulaic phrases and the ways that it ties in kind of history and mythology to what may have happened and what will happen and the very fairy tale kind of language is just my favorite thing in the whole wide world um it's so fun i mean i love the setting like don't get me wrong here i do love it it has lived like rent free in my head since i read the book uh it is and like how tertiary characters are split amongst the moons big chunks of it are gendered in very specific ways. Yes. Yeah, in that respect, it is very much of its moment. I see how it was published in 2005, where the the whole woo of, you know, oh, women are associated with the full moon and men are the new moon, or vice versa. I don't remember which one. Well, you see, well, you see, Jack, women are of the darkness and so are associated with the new moon. Jack, I, I guess like so. Opened a 90s tarot manual. You know, I can I can promise you I never have done that. I, I do think there's some worrying gender stuff here, but yeah. a lot of it can be uh, overwritten, ignored or brought to group table discussion to like, which I think is probably the right thing to do talk about it, talk about how you want to handle it. Like, one of the things we looked at right away was, like, relegating the tertiary characters based on gender to the moons. And we just decided that, uh, should such a thing come up, that was silly and we're not going to do it. Um, I mean, that said, there there are chunks of the game that, like, are not reducible in the same way that have, like, a very... It is the modern world that is evil, and like we're defending the last remnants of something that was like traditional and pure and beautiful, and now all of these people with their modern art, that which is horrible and scream-like, and yeah. <laughs> we're we're being frowned on for being too conservative. Yeah. Crucially, I am coming into this. Uh -huh. I am looking at a game from two thousand five yeah. from the political climate of twenty twenty three, twenty twenty four. Absolutely, mostly, mostly. I just think that. And I'm not sure what to do with it yet. I love the echoes of climate change in this game. Mm. I love... <laughs> I Because so much of stuff like degrowth, and I don't know nearly enough about degrowth to actually speak reasonably about it. If you want to look at degrowth, there are much... If you want to look into degrowth, there are much more qualified people to talk about it than me. Yeah, this is, this is not a sustainability podcast. The one thing about degrowth is a lot of... Is it in... Some ways, not all the ways, not even most ways, but in some ways, traditional practices are much more sustainable than, you know, you see something new, you see something flashy, you see something modern, and people go, wow, we love this, even if it's 
terrible for the planet. See things like microwave dinners. And, you know, someone goes, actually, maybe this is something we should be a little bit worried about. And everyone goes, oh, we can't go back to the 50s. We can't go back to the 1800s. Like, it's new. It's modern. It's great. So while I think it's completely, completely reasonable to go, hey, you know, why are we looking at reasonable and, and correct to go, okay, you know, what does this mean? That this is a game about the idealized past and return and and failing to return to the mythologized past. But God, it's also really neat to look at it in a the world is literally melting point of view mm. because, well, look at those ice caps, baby. Yeah. I think that it's it's very much within the folkloric tradition that you mentioned before, where the appeal is often to the idealized past. How do you get the thing that enables you to defeat the horrible monster? Will you go and you found it that when it was left for you by your forefathers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so in that sense, I think it is a very traditional game, but I, I don't think that it has to be traditional in the sense of any sort of modern political climate. I do think that this is generally in line with like, a very fairytale-like setting. I mostly, I did just want it to, to, I just did just want to flag this as, like, something that is worth discussion. I think that a lot of the issues can be worked on in the game, but I do think that you, you should talk about them and you should think about them if you are planning uh, to play it as things that, like, you need to be aware of and hopefully are and we'll see when you look at it and then understand, like, what you can do with those like what 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 discussions need to happen at the table before it's played what things you do and don't want to run into as you work through it because mm, yeah like we definitely talked about at the table of like hey is it is it possible that like some of the stuff that is said about the past is stuff that people are imposing from the present onto it and not necessarily things that are true uh, and i think that's a that's an interesting interpretation but to, to the credit, I guess, of the setting to some degree, it does kind of encourage that understanding of what you're reading, at least at certain points. Um, it's not totally clear once you to do that across the board, but one thing you could do is take that sort of natural line and be like, well, what if this? Um, and that kind of opens up a little bit of your options for the setting in terms of not, not losing the bits that are worth keeping, um, but also... That's another kind of social commentary you can think about and consider how that, how does that fit in then if that's what's going on? Um, and also just like as a quick note, this isn't us, you know, doing a resistant feminist reading of it. The game doesn't say that, you know, knights are men and it doesn't assume that the players are male in, you know, it's 2005. So the characters are gendered. I think it's from 2005. It's not from 1985. Yeah, we're doing this as, like, largely a bunch of, like, queer people going, hey, we under, it's, it's, it's nice that you've, you've done, like, a, a fairly, like, egalitarian reading of, 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 of gender, but your understanding seems pretty binary, huh? <laughs> the, the past is another country, as they, they say. The game is definitely interested in having you question how much of the story is true, how much of the mistake is what is claimed to be. But it almost, I don't know if it works against itself or it's, or it's actually like this masterful design, because all of that is then framed as sympathy for the demons and is what draws you uh, towards your weariness and your eventual fall. But if we think about that in the sense of, of truth, then it could very well be that the, the demons, the mistaken are correct. And that the world that was there before either isn't what it is said to be, or is uh, false or negative in some way. So I, I think that it kind of works well. And you could have a very interesting story of someone whose whose fall comes from that sympathy, from questioning or criticizing the typical understanding, and views that fall as as not a tragedy but a success. There's a bit of a challenge there in that the game is a tragedy game, <laughs> um, and so the framing the game takes on it will be 
um, tragic. You will be doing a resistant reading. Of yeah. Well, here's the other thing: the game is explicitly presenting this from the perspective of the knights. Yeah, I, I agree with all that, and I I think that this being a possibility in the game is something that is on the table. Um, I'm I'm just sort of suggesting that there's still something left that you could could frame that then in like a weird problematic way. But I think you can like a table that's aware of what's going on here would be better equipped to understand that and still be able to play out the game in a way that's both like aware of problems it could play into or uh, worrying messaging. It could have a good job at distinguishing like for the players, distinguishing what things are actually being endorsed here versus what the Knights are endorsing or, uh, understanding the knight's perspective or versus your characters or the demons or something like there's one could get into the weeds um we need not but i do think that that's something to depending on how you want to play it out uh that would be just good to discuss with the table if you'll allow me to change the subject entirely yeah sure Please. listener if you can play polaris in person interesting Yes. So much fun in person. Oh god, the energy. I I hope it carries it onto the recording because the energy was electric. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think so much of the negotiation because you're negotiating with people and not with dice. Mm. So much of it personally, I think so much about negotiation is like reading body language and looking at how people's expressions are mm-hmm. and making sure that everyone's on board and stuff like that. And I, I think that that is helped. I think that that's helped in person, but also just the energy is yeah, so good. Look, looking up at someone and sending them a furthermore that you know they're going to just be like, <laughs> oh, no, uh, is just a delight. Um, mm-hmm. Just the back and forth that you get going there and the expressions that you you have and provoke. Oh. Love it. Love it all the way through. Yeah, but I would say, and I I agree with what Avery said, if you can, play it in person, but this game can be played remotely. Yeah. And particularly after you've had one initial playthrough, I think the second time it would be much more doable. Yeah, I would definitely play this remotely. Um, I think that Lots of games lose something when you do them online. Like, I have a one of my other gaming groups swears that under no circumstances would they ever run 10 candles online because it wouldn't be 10 candles. Obviously, we ran 10 candles. It went great. Um, so I, I think that's also, you know, um, your mileage may vary thing because not everyone is lucky enough to have uh, gaming groups in person. It certainly took a lot of doing for us to uh, pull it off in person, so... I'm I'm very sympathetic to the relative possibility of that option. And it's going to take even more doing because God, the recording is going to be a the recording is gonna be so fun and exciting because we were sitting in one room. Emily might kill us and and listener, if we're dead, she was right. She had the right to do so. <laughs> she did. I there were there were so many points in this during which like we are saying things softly because we're in the same room with each other. Uh, and, and we want to, like, preserve that energy. Uh, and we're and then we have to go, no, no, wait, someone think of the microphone. <laughs> Further on the topic of, like, if you are going to play Polaris, I think we all had a very good time with it. Crucially, we are all experienced GMs in one way or another. This is, I think, something that benefits from that greatly. Yeah, this is not a beginner game. Um, I would not recommend this to anyone who is uncomfortable taking radical agency in a story um, that they're telling collaboratively. I think that this is going to really shine when there are a bunch of storytellers around a table. It is one of those kind of... I, I think one of my favorite things about indie games is a lot of them tend to be written by writers for writers. And yeah. this is one of those beautiful, beautiful games that that does that and because of it it's not going to work for every group but god when it hits a group that it should work with it sings and in my opinion the best games are like that um or at least the best dramatic games are like that comedy games are spectacular but they're a totally different animal yeah it's always difficult for me to 
accurately evaluate the pitfalls of a system when I play with this group and with the broader Calamity pod in general. Because everyone is really uncommonly good in both their experience as players and as game masters, storytellers, etc. There is probably, I think if we counted up, at least 50 years worth of GMing experience in our team, which is a weird thing to say. It makes me feel like I'm, I don't know, doing a, a Discovery Channel special. But it means that when there are friction, there's friction and pain points, almost always you have three or four different perspectives on how to solve it and move right along. So it leads me, I think, to be a little harsher sometimes because my thought process, okay, what about the person who's never run a game before? And I think, honestly, if this game is being played with a bunch of people who have never run or played in an RPG, they're going to have a tough time. I I do think, just on this note, it is this would be difficult for people who have not GM'd games before. I think it's like you need to have some GMing experience. It probably you need some in systems that are not super mechanics heavy. And you probably just need to know that you like have some idea that you can take agency. Cause like you could come to this being like, ah, I have lots of experience. Let me play this game. And then feel like, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> what do I do now? Um, and you, you need to like be comfortable taking control and being antagonistic. Um, whether whether you're the heart or the moons or um uh, uh, or the mistaken like the game does want you and i i think helpfully pushes you to make claims and accomplish big things in even just like quick strokes um and i i think you you need a little bit of experience and with that experience a little bit of sort of backbone for that um that helps move it forward And again, like, we're making broad generalizations here. If you're a writer and have never GM'd a game before, but would be open to it, and all of this sounds like, oh, I feel like I could do that, go do it. In the same vein, I know a lot of GMs who this would be totally outside their wheelhouse because they're very used to a very crunchy system. I think it comes down to storytelling experience. Um, But if you're up to the challenge... Don't let that stop you, because if you pick this game up, you're at the very least going to get to read this game, and that is definitely worth the price of the game. It's so pretty. Yeah. Yeah. It's the the first, I think, 30 or 40 pages are just truly some of the most beautiful prose that you're going to find in an RPG. And if this does nothing else but fill your mind with dreams of this beautiful, sorrowful northern city and the people who love it and have lost it, it's worth the price of admission. Yeah, if you if you pick this up and just read the setting, it's well worth it. If you pick this up and you get a chance to play, absolutely do the, do it. This was electric. So good. Yeah, I, I second that. It was very rewarding to not only take all the ideas and sort of load them in the uh, to think about and kind of chew on, but then to actually get to delve into it with other people who are there for developing the story, developing the characters, and playing this out. I just thought it was a very rewarding time. A great way to spend a, an evening or more. Gosh, it was such a good game. <laughs> <laughs> So good. It's, it's so different. I wonder if you could do a family tree of these games. Because I would be so interested in like comparing all of the acknowledgments pages from like the last 20 or 30 years of gaming and just seeing what has influenced what. Because <laughs> gosh. Yeah, Polaris is absolutely influential. There is I uh, there is a game that I bought just this past year. Someday we'll play Inevitable. We'll play, we'll do it someday. Uh, oh, see the character sheet I sent you? Yes. Uh, I it, in, Inevitable cites Polaris as one of its influences, and its conflict resolution is is like bargaining off fragments of your reputation. Like you can see where some of those threads come through. All right, I think that's it. Any last any last thoughts? Any last words on Polaris? 
we must find the phrase. But all that was long ago. And there are none. Yeah. (laughs) But all all that happened long ago. And now there are none who remember it. Thank you for listening. Join us next week as we play a spooky system called Cthulhu Eternal. If you like our show, why not give us a rate and review on your preferred podcast service? On social media, we're on Blue Sky and Twitter at Calamity Vault and on Tumblr at Calamity Pod. Give us an email at calamityvault at gmail.com if you want to chat with us. See you next week.